Right. So we actually have a fair amount to cover today. Um, I'll be open to uh, responding to any questions you have. Uh, but these two classes, there's a lot. And hopefully that I'm able to get it all. If not, I will make sure that you have the outlines so you know what I'm trying to talk about. Um, just a few housekeeping things first. So on the Google Classroom, I should have uploaded uh, the document with the dates and the lessons coordinated. I didn't feel like going back and updating the syllabus, so you have both of them there. You can look on the syllabus to see the, the I finished it, so the, the grading weight to different things, but we've already sort of discussed that. If there are any other questions to the syllabus that y'all have, now, we didn't get into a lot of discussion with the syllabus, but it's pretty simple. Lecture, discussion, we're going to make it through. Any questions? All right. So um, what I've also did is shared a folder, hopefully I'll have access to it, where I will give the outlines to each of the classes as a Google Doc. So after the class is over and I edit it, you can go back and you can see the outlines with the notes and everything, so you have access to that. As, as I said before, I, oh, look at that. It's Ryan. What's up, Ryan? Do we have to see him the whole time? <laughs> I mean, you can minimize the screen if All right. you like. Oh, yeah. It's not, we don't want to be distracting y'all. I mean, um, so. Just housekeeping kind of thing. So I see the link. I'm actually in the link right now for the complete outline section. Have you put any in there? Yeah, I have. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Okay, there's four. I'm gonna put I'm gonna put them each time we go. So the thing is, is my goal my goal is I'm not here to trick y'all. You I want you to learn these things, uh, and so to take the information so that you can share it with others. Um, and as our as our discussion last time, I will give assigned readings, but be honest with me. Say, Father, this is just like too abstract or too weird. Um, sometimes I forget that. We're, we're figuring these things out as we go. Uh, not that y'all are dumb, I know that. Uh, but like, yeah, went back and looked at the Molina article. What's important is the first part. And so I went back in the Google Classroom and said, just focus on the, these pages. That last part, when he starts getting to Bonaventure and everything, it's a bit too obscure. And, and the truth is, it's not that I disagree with it, but it's not the approach that I would take. But I think it's important for y'all to get a little flavor of different people's theological styles. Uh, another thing that I did add to the notes is when we talk about conformity to Christ and, and living that new life in the resurrection, we can't forget the Eucharistic dimension. I mean, as we grow closer to Christ in the Eucharist, to the Mass and adoration, of course, that we're going to find a deeper connection uh, that conformity to Christ and transformation in him has to have a Eucharistic dimension. But we'll see that more when we look at prayer. But um, ending these introductory notes, in the art, an article I gave you all to read from Jacques Philippe about holiness, he gives a quote from John of the Cross, which really struck me as encapsulating what I was trying to convey to y'all. Uh, one of the ideas when we watched that little cartoon about how the, the father does what the kids want. He's willing to, to, to play magic xylophone, to be subject to their desires out of his love for them. So listen to this great quote from John of the Cross. God is the power and persistence of love, since it overcomes and binds God himself. Happy is the soul who loves, because that soul holds God captive and obtains from him all that he or she desires. For God's nature is such that if we take him by love in the right way, we will make him do what we want. So this is very interesting, the way that the children, love their love for the father captured his heart, and he would stop as a statue and play magic xylophone in sort of the same ways if we approach the Lord with that confidence of a child he, he will give us uh, what we want but anyhow we're going to try now to complete our Trinitarian foundation of moral theology um, or introduction to it by looking at the Holy Spirit and it's an important part of the, the moral section in the catechism I'm going to refer a lot to the catechism today and the third part of the catechism, as we've been looking at the moral section, section one is called man's vocation, life in the spirit. Man's vocation, life in the spirit. And this is what catechism 1697 says. When they're talking about the different elements of the um, 
the, the catechesis and the moral life. One is uh, catechesis for the newness of life in Christ. That's what we're talking about. Moral life is newness of life in Christ, building on what we talked about already. But one of the elements is a catechesis of the Holy Spirit, the interior master of life according to Christ, a gentle guest and friend who inspires, guides, corrects, and strengthens his life. We're going to be talking about the economic work of the Trinity rather than the imminent work of the Trinity. In your Trinitarian theology class, you could talk all about the persons and whatnot, but we're going to focus on how the Spirit helps us in our own moral life. We've got to make a few initial statements. First of all, and again, I'm just, y'all know this, the Holy Spirit is a person, the third person of the Trinity. He's not a bird, he's not some wind, he's not some fire. These are symbols of the Spirit. Of course, it can be difficult to envision him properly uh, because it's very easy to say, well, God the Father, he's got the beard, he's sitting on the throne, Jesus got the long hair, walking around with a robe, Holy Spirit, bird. Very hard, hard to be able to do that. Uh, He's more like the force from Star Wars. I found a great quote from Ratzinger. One cannot display the Spirit of God as one displays goods for sale in a shop. He can be seen only by the one who bears him within himself. It's a really, really interesting way of looking at things. You want to know the Holy Spirit? you got to have the Holy Spirit. I also think you've got to see him. You'll notice him by the fruits in your life. All that means, if you want to know the Spirit, you've got to develop a relationship with him. He can't just be a bird. He can't just be a force. And unfortunately, a lot of Catholics do not do that. Also, of course, the Holy Spirit has been given an important place in the work of salvation. You can look at Catechism 737 and read that to see more about it. But our interaction with the Holy Spirit, while indeed the Spirit blows where he wants, is basically grounded in our baptism and the indwelling Trinity. We've been given the gifts necessary for our own sanctification and then at confirmation to be able to go on our mission. Without the indwelling of the Trinity uh, as the, the basis of our Christian life and our moral life, we're not going to really be able to live a life in the Spirit. So we've got to, through prayer and reception of the sacraments, fan into flame the gifts that have been given to us. In order for us to follow Christ, to repent and believe the good news, and to live according to the new law. Now, we're going to talk more about this later, but this is going to be an important phrase for y'all to know. You can be assured that this is going to come up on one of your quizzes. The new law. If you read the section of the Catechism on morals and the Holy Spirit, you're going to see this phrase come up. We've got to talk about what it is. In order to do so, if you read the pink air section, you kind of know what it is, but We're going to go back to St. Thomas Aquinas. Uh, Father Pinkairs, who who wrote the little morality of the Catholic views, argument is that the new law and our understanding of this forms the the head, the core of Thomas's moral teaching. So he still argued that Thomas's commentary on the new law was ignored by most commentaries and manuals. Uh, that came after the Council of Trent. So, I put there something to read. I'm sure y'all know the divisions of the Summa. Do y'all know how, when I write all this stuff out? The, pre, the, the Prima Secundae. It's questions 106 to 108. And then the articles there contained in, I think I gave you one of the articles to read. If you look over this section of the New Law, Thomas... The catechism is going to sort of build on what Thomas has to say. But Thomas will say that the new law consists of two parts. Two parts. You know what the new law consists of? Did anybody read this? What are the two parts of the new law? One part is it has to be from the heart. No. Sorry. So it would be literally the Holy Spirit. Correct. The words of the gospel. Correct. Very good. Got it. So there are two parts. The first... Question 106, Article 1. The new law is chiefly the grace itself of the Holy Spirit, or the gift itself of the Holy Spirit. 
which is given to those who believe in Christ. So the first part is the Holy Spirit himself. He is the new law. So, so, so it poured into our hearts. And this is going to go back to Jeremiah 31, verses 31 to 33. Behold, the days are coming while I will make a new covenant. And I'm going to make that covenant on their heart. I will put my law within them and I will write it upon their hearts and I will be their God and they will be my people. So the catechism picks this up. Paragraph 1966. The new law is the grace of the Holy Spirit given to the faithful through faith in Christ. So again, we're going to talk more about grace later, but we're not talking about graces, but grace as gift, as charis, as gratia. Here, you're given this gift, this grace of the Holy Spirit. Well, I mean, I think anyone, certain people, you don't need to actually be baptized to receive gifts of the Spirit, but we're going to be focusing on the baptized here. I'm not going to get in, I see, I see what you're saying, because they just say faith in Christ, and I'm assuming the catechism is believing you have faith in Christ, it means you've received baptism and you live in supernatural faith. We're going to assume that. Good question, though. Good noticing that. It continues, and this is going back to 1965, the paragraph 1965. The new law, or the law of the gospel, is the perfection here on earth of the divine law, natural and revealed. It is the work of Christ and is expressed particularly in the Sermon on the Mount. It is also the work of the Holy Spirit, and through him it becomes the interior law of charity. Again, you've got to be able to operate in supernatural charity, you have to have the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit is going to come through baptism, which, of course, comes the result of your faith in Christ. So that's the first one. So it's the Holy Spirit himself. When we talk about the new law, primarily I'm going to be talking about this, although we're going to get to the other sections of the new law. The second part, according to Thomas, is the elements that dispose us <clears throat> to receive the grace of the Holy Spirit or I could say even to sort of live in the grace of the Holy Spirit. The Catechism clarifies, it uses the Sermon on the Mount to teach us, this is the new law, what must be done and makes use of the sacraments to give us the grace to do it. And so it's really the Sermon on the Mount with the Beatitudes, and then you could also say the sacraments and other certain precepts. But basically, it's the law that is written into the heart, which is the Holy Spirit, and the Sermon on the Mount, the sacraments uh, that don't justify themselves but point to justification and uh, teach us how to live this out. So the new law is primarily an interior law and secondarily something exterior, which is written in Scripture or gives us the precepts of how to live it out. Again, there's a whole section on the law, the new law, or the law of the gospel. You can call it either way. Um, because when we look at the Sermon on the Mount, Christ, the way Matthew presents it is Christ is the new Moses. He is giving us the new law, which is fulfilling the old law, which was given by Moses. But we'll see that more later. So to live by the new law, is to live a life in the Spirit. Live a life in the Gospel is to live a life in the Spirit. Life in conformity to Christ is to live a life in the Spirit. And so there are so many ways that the Spirit guides and forms us in our moral lives. Ultimately, as we're going to develop next time, the moral life is a call to holiness. And it is the Holy Spirit who sanctifies us, for he is the source of all holiness. Just like we talked about our identity is something given to us, holiness is something given to us. I guess I really was trying to say last time that as much as you practice virtues and as much as you do that, you're not going to conform yourself to Christ. The Spirit will conform you to Christ. He will do the work. And I think sometimes you're not even going to realize he's doing the work. We need to cooperate and dispose ourselves to it, but you're not going to make yourself Jesus. You're not going to make yourself holy. The Spirit is the, the person who is going to do that. And so he, he is active in our lives 
And as he transforms us and we're conformed to Christ, our moral life is going to flow from that. It's going to flow from that following the promptings of the Spirit and being sanctified. Our actions are going to flow from our being. We are going to act in a more moral way because we are being made holy. And so what are some of the ways that the Spirit is active in our lives? Well, first of all, if we look at the Catechism, um, the Spirit, this is 734, restores our, the divine likeness. You know, we're created in the image and likeness of God, as we know. By the interior transformation in Christ, he forms Christ in our lives, as he formed Christ's humanity in Mary's womb. He's the one who brings about the transformation. Under that divine likeness is the image of God, but also in the image of Christ. We also know that the Spirit, Christ promised, would lead us to all truth. The truth of who Jesus is, but you can also say through moral truth. Um, he guides us into what it means to be human, what it means to follow Christ. But I'm going to argue, too, that he also speaks the truth not only to us, but he also speaks it on our behalf. There's something I was reading from Ratzinger, which I never thought about before. One of the titles of the Holy Spirit is the advocate. What is an advocate? We have at least one advocate in this room who should know what I'm talking about. Someone who speaks on someone else's behalf. Correct, an avocato, a lawyer. He speaks on your behalf. He's your attorney. He defends you. Against whom? Satan. Satan, who is the what? The enemy. The accuser. The accuser. So he is going to speak the truth on your behalf. So when the Satan is accusing you, you're no good, you're terrible, you're horrible, it's our responsibility to call on the Spirit to speak on our behalf which I don't think we probably do very often. Um, but we should maybe call on him more. Hey, stand up for me. Speak on my behalf. This is what your job is, Holy Spirit. Let's get, on, let's get to work. You know, come on, people. So that, that's interesting. So when the temptation of the lies come to make us question who we are in identity, we need to call on him on our behalf. And of course... If we are sons and daughters of God, we are called to live, as St. Paul says, in the freedom of the sons of God. And so he helps us to live in that freedom by overcoming the bondage to sin, to leading us to live in that new law of freedom. So Catechism 1695 sums it up. Justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God, Sanctified and called to be saints, Christians have become the temple of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of the Son teaches them to pray to the Father, and having become their life, prompts them to act so as to bear the fruit of the Spirit by charity and action. Healing the wounds of sin, the Holy Spirit renews us interiorly through a spiritual transformation. He enlightens and strengthens us to live as children of light through all that is good and right and true. Again, the Spirit's going to be acting, so we need to have that life of prayer, of fanning into flame the gift that was given to us, so that we can be transformed, but we can also, as we'll see, follow the inspirations and the gifts of the Spirit. So, that, that's all in a certain sense establishing the spiritual foundation. How practically do we as Christians and Catholics believe the Spirit interacts in our life, particularly in helping us in our moral life? By what? Hammer does not know. Yes. Actual grace. Actual grace. True. I'm looking for something else. Thank you very much, brother. That's right. The gifts of the Holy Spirit. Catechism, 1830. The moral life of Christians is sustained by the gifts of the Spirit. These are permanent dispositions which make man docile in following the promptings of the Spirit. So notice, these, these gifts are supernatural, not natural in our origin, like the moral virtues. 
Um, now, this is the thing. You, you have the list of the, the gifts of the Spirit from Isaiah 11, verses 2 to 3. We're going to go over them. I'll be honest with you, for every book on spiritual theology, there are going to be different definitions of what exactly they are and how exactly they work. And, and I'm not necessarily interested in getting into the details of these as much as for you to know that the Spirit does involve in your life and he does give gifts that help us live the moral life. Seven gifts, wisdom, understanding, counsel, fortitude, knowledge, piety, and fear of the Lord. So just in general, I'm taking this from Jordan Allman's Spiritual Theology. I don't know, do y'all use that textbook? Uh, the textbook Jordan Allman, his kind of that seminal great work on spiritual theology, uh, well, at least contemporary great work. Wisdom enables man to judge and order all things in accord with the divine will. The wisdom helps us, okay, how, how is God working? A wise person sees and understands God's will and how things work with that. Understanding gives a deeper insight into divine truths held by faith as a permanent disposition. So understanding kind of helps us know truth. Wisdom helps us see how God is acting. Counsel renders man docile and receptive to the counsel of God in regards to his actions in view of his eternal salvation. This is the discernment of spirits, as you will. Fortitude, to overcome difficulties or to endure suffering with strength infused by God. That makes sense. Knowledge here allows man to judge rightly concerning the truths of the faith in accord with their proper causes and the principles of revealed truth. Now, in my opinion, how is this different from understanding? I'm really not too sure. But maybe it seems that it shows the unity of the truths of the faith while understanding helps us to grasp individual beliefs. Possibly, but I'm not one to get into the weeds on this. Take it up with Isaiah. Piety then leads man to give filial worship to God the Father. John, John Paul is going to talk about it's going to help have reverence for the body. It shows that there are all these different interpretations of these things. And fear of the Lord, of course, is, not, it is a filial fear of the Lord. It's a great respect, which helps man avoid sin and attachment to create a good and of healthy respect for the Lord's majesty. Now, these are the, the gifts of the Spirit, and they do operate in our lives, and trust me, you know, we can, Augustine connects them to the Beatitudes, and we can connect them to the seven principles of our Father, and we're going to look at some of that. Once again, I, I'm more interested in the fact that the Spirit gives us gifts in order to help us live the Christian life, which is... I, the moral life is an offshoot or a result of that. But they're more than just these gifts that are given to us. It's not like the Holy Spirit, I have seven gifts to give you, that's it, I'm done. No, there, there are numerous gifts. We could talk about the actual graces the Spirit gives to us. We could talk about the charismatic gifts, the graces freely given, whether they be ordinary or, or extraordinary, which are meant for the upbuilding of the church. Uh, one of the things that I think I uploaded today was really interesting about how the Spirit works in our lives, that fire which gives us the power to, to proclaim the gospel. And um, it was from a homily he gave. And again, Ratzinger always surprises me coming up with stuff. He's so dogmatic, but he comes up with new ways of viewing things. He talks about how, I believe it was in Luke, that... John and James, the Boanerges, the sons of thunder, they wanted to call down fire on uh, the pagans or the people who were not with Jesus and proclaiming his, his, his word. Remember that? So Jesus said, don't do that. We're not calling down the fire. But when is that passage revisited and later fulfilled? By Luke. Come on, y'all. Y'all know this. Pentecost! The, the fire is called down not on the enemies, but on them. And the fire that doesn't destroy, but the fire that renews. So I have the little passage there from that homily. Uh, I uploaded it. So yeah, we're 
we're going to, to receive the gift of the Spirit, which is primary, that brings us the fire to proclaim the gospel. And so many gifts uh, that I think are beyond even just that lift of seven. The gifts, though, however, do help us to achieve other ends as human beings. They perfect the, the, the various spiritual and moral faculties. They perfect the virtues, the supernatural and natural. As the Catechism says, they, they make us docile to the promptings of the Spirit. And this is what I think is important. All right. I know this is sort of like a dogmatic presentation and, and, and kind of very formal, which I need to be able to give you because there's a lot of theology written on the role of the spirit in the moral life. But as important as these virtues are and as important as the gifts are and we need to pray for them, where are we going to on a daily basis see the working of the Holy Spirit, particularly in our moral life? Where's the real part that, that if we're going to break out of the manuals and the textbooks and all that, where, where are we going to see the Spirit working on a day-to-day basis? Archbishop Hughes said the greatest spiritual battle in the first morning is getting out of bed. So there you go. Okay. Even even just that. That's true, but we're looking for something else. We're looking for something else, the the creative action of the Spirit, where he works rather than us just getting out of bed. Then maybe that's fortitude to get out of bed. I don't know if this is it, but Catherine Sienna said that, like, virtue and vice is born in our uh, interactions with our neighbor. Okay. You're correct, but we're, we're moving towards something else. But... No, talking about something else. It's crazy how like few of these we're getting here. Oh, I know, y'all. <laughs> but and maybe this is a little off. The Holy, the, the, it, we're going to use different terms about to it, but it, the, that it's something that Thomas will talk about. It's something the Catechism talks about, and it's something that I have as an article from Jacques Philippe. It's the individual inspirations of the Holy Spirit. So all this other stuff is boilerplate, you know, the virtues and all that. But the Holy Spirit is a person. He's involved in your life. And we've got to believe that we are in tune with the Spirit. He is going to inspire us on a daily basis. Not that he is going to inspire you to choose necessarily breakfast roast over chicory and coffee in the morning. He's not interested in that. Maybe. No, that's according to the natural law. You should not drink the chicory. Unless, you know, unless you're from New Orleans, you should avoid that. It's a natural, universal principle. But the point is, the Spirit wishes to give us on a day-to-day basis guidance, inspiration, in a very personal way. Go read the Acts of the Apostles. Are you getting at, like, No, not not no no not not yet no. Father, I'm having a hard time understanding like the distinction between these inspirations and actual grace. Well, you would call them actual grace. You could call them again. We're going to get into grace a little bit later on. I'm using a more contemporary term. Uh, you could use the word, even though there there's some debate on what Thomas means about the instinctus of the spirit. That's a word we're going to bring up. Thomas will talk about. The instinctus. Uh, the way that we could translate it is the person who is following alive with the Spirit, yes, may be responding to very particular actual graces, but this instinct is something which is living, which is part, it's part of the, the spiritual organism. Correct, yes. Yeah, or the way the Acts of the Apostles describes it. I mean, Philip is, all of a sudden the Spirit carried him to go see the Ethiopian eunuch, then he carried him somewhere else. Those are extreme examples of it, but we've got to believe that the Holy Spirit, again, my problem, or what we're going to talk about, is the reification of grace. To reify something means like you're making it a thing. An actual grace, we believe in these things, it's like, here's a little actual grace. No, 
It's true. It's not a thing. It's not a thing that's given to you. The Holy Spirit is a person who speaks to you, who inspires you, who you can interact with. But if we're focusing too much on the things in between rather than the person, it, 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 it draws us away from the, the real way of encountering the Spirit as a person rather than a grace dispenser. The Holy Spirit is not like, oh, here's a grace, boop, like a, like a little Pez dispenser. The Holy Spirit's a person who we can interact with and who challenges us. He gives us instincts, inspirations to follow in our life that go beyond the following of the law. That's, that's the thing. Yeah, here are the rules. Here's, here's what we ought to do. But if we are living in the Spirit, if because of Christ's resurrection and his Spirit-filled body, he has poured that Spirit upon us, we can listen and be aware of the movement of the Spirit. So according to sort of the Catholic theology here, the gifts make us docile to the promptings of the Spirit. You call them the instincts, the inspirations. If you've been to Crucio, the pings. Now, for some people, it may be they hear a word. For some people, it's a little nudge. Like that story I told you, the nudge that I had. Let me go and buy the gumball for this girl. Whether Do I have the certitude of faith the Spirit was talking to me? No. No. But as we grow in prayer and a real encounter with the Lord and allowing him to transform us to be as intimate as we saw in the cartoon, then we're going to be able to be attuned to the way the Spirit works. Pushing us in general, yes, towards excellence, to go outside of ourselves, to love God and to love neighbor, but to be able to really pay attention of how he anoints those individual situations uh, or, or even waking you up in the middle of the night to pray. And then the next day you found out you were praying for this person and this person ended up getting a car accident. I mean, these are we all have crazy examples of like that. But this is part of the excitement that you see in the Acts of the Apostles where we are responding to the, the, the Spirit. But unless we are praying, unless we're in relationship with the Lord, not just saying prayers, Holy Spirit, come upon me. That's great. But unless we're in that relationship, we're not going to be able to notice or understand the voice of the Spirit. So one of the analogies I like to use is back in the day. There's only a few of you people here remember the back in the day when you'd have your car and you want to listen to the radio you didn't have the digital, you had the dial, and it would go back and forth, and you had to twist the dial and get right on 94.5, and then you could listen, but sometimes you'd be driving, and if you're on that back road, the dial would go back and forth, and you always had to tune it in properly. This is what prayer does. If we want to listen to the Spirit, we need to be tuned in, and of course, things of the world can distract us, and we can lose the, the, the way it's tuned in. We go so that we can be there, able to know how the Spirit is working. Because he is, as the Catechism says, the interior master of prayer. But here's the point, y'all. Just like, okay, Jesus and his 12 apostles. All the 12 apostles interacted with Jesus. They all interacted with the same Jesus. But do you think Jesus interacted the same exact way with all the 12 apostles? No. Of all your friends, they're all friends with you, but do you interact with them all the same way? No, you don't. Persons develop relationships with other persons. And while there's a certain similarity, there are always going to be differences because persons are different. And so while we will say, yes, the Spirit gives us all gifts, we're all going to interact with the Spirit differently, and we're going to be able to, in our own way, pick up eventually how the Spirit's prompting us. I, I'll tell you one way that I know when the Spirit prompts me. It happens maybe two or three times a year, not often, but it happens inevitably during the consecration or right after. An idea, poof, will pop in my head. And, and I'll remember it, which I usually forget everything, I'll, like, I'll forget all my stuff here probably in the class today, but I remember it. And then when I act on it, 
98% of the time, it comes to fruition. And sometimes the thought is craziness, but I've prayed enough and I've worked on this. This is how the Spirit tends to act. He may not act that way with you, but then again, we don't act the same way with everyone. We, 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 we tailor it according to different persons. Oh, it could be an inspiration to reach out to somebody. It could be, I, there are times like I've had a project that I wanted to do and I didn't know how to do it. All of a sudden, what usually happens with me is the whole thing will come in one second. I'll understand it completely. Like, it, sometimes it happens outside of that. I just know that it's not a process of my deduction. Like the, uh, the retreat that I gave on the prodigal son, I was struggling. What, what do I need to pray? What do I need to do the retreat on for weeks? And I was sitting in the chapel and it all came within... 30 seconds, or the whole talk, the outline. I just knew exactly what I needed to say. But that's how it works with me. And sometimes, yeah, there are inspirations to pray for people. I mean, there are certain things we experience. But the point is, if we're not, if we have a formal relationship with the Spirit, or if we have no relationship with the Spirit, that he's just, you know, the chocolate milk, the chocolate put at the bottom of the milk jar and the cup, and we never start into flames then we're never going to know because the spirit wants to guide us in certain ways to touch certain people, to speak to certain devotions of prayer or fasting, whatever it might be. So uh, I guess just because um, I've heard people say this before, actually, um, and I'm sure we've all thought this in our own life at some point, but how do you, you, you said how you recognize the spirit, but like to stay in that touch with the spirit, you said prayer, it's a good question. So I'm going to suggest the, the, the book or the book by Father Jacques Philippe. Uh, he has a number one about like living in the life of the spirit. Um, I think what I forgot. It's the I can tell you the break, what book it is, where he gives very concrete ways to do that. We're going to come to that probably a little bit later on when we talk about the moral life in prayer and sanctity. Uh, this may be more of your spiritual theology class, but I can tell you it's a habit. Could I have recognized 25 years ago how the Spirit works in my life? Not really. It, it just takes a long while of doing it. In the same way, um, you're going to encounter married couples who will say after 20, 25 years, they don't need to speak to each other. They can just look at their spouse and know what they're supposed to, what they're thinking. You've heard that before, huh? It's kind of the same way. Uh, you're not always right. You're not always right, but th- there comes th- this instinct that you get and it develops that you know how the Spirit's moving to bring you above and beyond the simple following of the law and to be able to guide you in a direction that you may not have expected. And we're going to talk about that. The greatest obstacle to holiness is our own vision of the type of saint we're supposed to be. And the reading that I have for y'all from Jacques Philippe on holiness explains all of that. And it is. I've seen that in my own life. This is the type of saint I'm going to be. Chances are that's not what the Lord wants you to be. That's you superimposing your own desire for control over your life. Holiness is usually radically something much different. So, so we have the spirit working where we may not even know it by transforming us into Christ. We have the gifts we have these individual promptings that lead us to, to do certain moral deeds, to pray or whatever. But how do we know we're doing it correctly? How do we know that the Spirit is working in our lives and that we're responding to his movements and his grace? How do we know? Fruits of the Spirit. Amen, brother. Correct. It's the fruits. By your fruits, you will know them. If we are living a life in the Spirit, we're going to produce certain fruits. The fruits of the Spirit are perfections that the Holy Spirit forms in us as first fruits of eternal glory. Galatians 5, 22 to 23. Charity, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, generosity, gentleness, faithfulness, modesty, self-control, and chastity. You want to see a person who's, who's living a life in the Spirit? You want to see a person who is being conformed to Christ, you look for these things. And we know it when we see it. We talked about it before. We know it when we see it. Now, does anyone live this perfectly? No. But I, I like gentleness, 
modesty. You know, this is what we're called to. There are going to be times when we we're able to speak boldly, but there are going to be times when we're able to be meek. We're going to talk about that with the Beatitudes. So the, the, the gifts of the Spirit, the fruits of the Spirit, are opposed to what in St. Paul? Fruits of the Spirit opposed to what? Flesh. Yes, the works of the flesh. The fruits of the Spirit versus the works of the flesh. Galatians 19.21, 5.19-21. Now the works of the flesh are obvious. Immorality, impurity, licentiousness, idolatry, sorcery, hatreds, rivalry, jealousy, outbursts of fury, acts of selfishness, dissensions, factions, occasions of envy, drinking bouts, orgies, and the like. Warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. As I said last time, there are certain things we Christians do not do. Just don't behave this way. Uh, Again, you know, I can't tell you the times I would say this on a college campus. Because I'd see people coming to Mass and doing stuff like this. Christians don't behave this way. This is the life of party. This is life of the flesh. You are called to live a life in the Spirit. You're going to have to give these things up, which means you're going to have to cut off friends, cut off certain habits. The Spirit is going to prompt you to do that, but this this is not going to work. And so it is the life of the flesh opposed to the life in the Spirit that is so clear in St. Paul. Giving up that conversion is turning away from the life of the flesh, of being grounded in worldly ways of thinking, in sin, in our attachments, to live in the freedom of the sons of God. In the theology of the body, as we're going to talk about next year, John Paul II says that life in the spirit is the way the redemption of the body is lived out. The spirit is constantly transforming us, but specifically purifying our hearts. We become pure by the virtue of chastity, but it's also a gift that is given to us. And as a result, as our hearts become purer, what do the pure of heart what are they able to do? See God. see God. They can see God, which is looking forward to what we're going to talk about in the next hour. So I really think that we can examine our lives. If we, even though, as we're going to say, I'm not a big, the biggest fan of trying to analyze progress. It's probably not the wisest thing. And that Jacques Philippe article will also talk a little bit about that, or we shouldn't be analyzing our own progress. Um, we can examine our conscience by it. By now, y'all, y'all should be beyond examining your conscience by the Ten Commandments. Y'all should have the Ten Commandments down, I think. I mean, I'm not saying that we're not going to sin against those, but it's time to go a little deeper if you're in first theology. Um, it's like being a 30-year-old man and having training wheels on your bike. We'll talk more about that later on. But why not examine your conscience according to the fruits of the Spirit? Am I seeing these in my life? Or am I not seeing these in my life? It's a pretty good sign that maybe we need to be more open to the Spirit and its fruits. But there's another thing, though, while we're talking about our own holiness and sanctification, the fruits of the Spirit, living by the new law, this is all the way the Spirit works individually. But the Holy Spirit also works in the body of Christ. We talked about how there's conformity of Christ as the individual, and we can conform ourselves to Christ as the church. The Spirit working in the church, bringing the gifts to the church, sanctifying the bride, what is the primary thing that we notice when the Spirit is working? What does the Spirit bring? What is that characteristic that we see from the Spirit? Joy, Joy true, but it's the individual. But we're going to talk about that. Oh, we're talking about it. Don't worry. We're about ready to talk about it. What else? Uh, unity. It's unity. Spirit, this is, unites the Father and the Son. The Spirit is going to bring about unity in the body of Christ. Works of the flesh bring about disunity, dissension, fighting, breaking of right relationships. And so the diabolos, the devil wants to separate, wants to cut, put it cross purposes, to destroy unity. The house divided against itself cannot stand. So the work of the Spirit is to unite. And this is my little exhor- exhortation. We always need to be vigilant to this in the church. 
we really need to be vigilant to it now because we, we, we don't have certain factors that did unite before and there is a lot of criticizing, negativity uh, in the church that is not working for unity but is bringing about disunity. I think I think so. I mean, I'm sure you could probably find Augustine says something about that. But well, let me tell you, you'll find it if you got some young people or old people living unchaste relationships. They're gonna fight. That's gonna fall apart. You know, uh, it's it's the the friends of the prodigal son. Oh, we're all together, but we're sinning. Uh, they fell apart. It always falls apart. Your friendships built in Christ will last many, many years. I think there is definitely a connection there. What do you say about um, this unity? That is, like, how, do you, how would you distinguish this unity from things that people like, just don't? I don't know. All right, so, like, concrete example, maybe phrase something better. Like, what if this push of like uh, more orthodox or more um, formed younger clergy versus the older clergy? There's this unity there. Yeah, no, so I, I, I see what you're saying. I mean, I, I think a little, one of the ways we're going to notice it is, yes, there are differences, but do we seeing criticism, carping, jealousy, negativity? It's the way it's expressed. It's the way it's expressed. I, you know, I can tell you, like, I, this is the different generations and which, which we can have this discussion. I fully don't get it because that I'm a liberal. <laughs> I, I, I gave a homily on that. There were some prisoners who got mad at me and they left because they said I was a liberal. So I, 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 I've been called many things in my life. <laughs> Most of them start with the, a, a, the letter A, <laughs> but I've never been called liberal before. Compared to the generation before me, we were all arch conservatives because they were having clown masses. You know, they were doing crazy things. We're not. Now, granted, there may be some that are, but in general, the John Paul II generation trying to do the right thing. But now to this next generation, we're heresiarchs. I mean, I don't get it. But I would say, like, hey, all right, we looked at the generation before us as screwing up the church, which in a great sense they kind of did. But as I got older, I had greater respect for some of those guys that they still maintain their priesthood after going through the complete craziness because they, they remained, they stayed when the other ones left. And I think that's where the dialogue comes in to say, hey, y'all, y'all challenge me. I've had associates for, gosh, many, many years, and I was very blessed the associates would challenge me on certain things. To say, hey, I see, because you forget things as a priest. You get, oh, how do you do that again, or whatever, or to bring a fresh new way of looking at things. Um, don't come attack me, because if you come attack me, that's not respect. But then he would listen to me, and we kind of work together. That's what I, I think needs to happen. So, like, you can distinguish that, like, this unity, the attack, the clicks, the kind of. Oh, yeah, yeah. It's the pharisaical attitude, yeah where we know better, which is really out of your own insecurity usually. So it's the Pharisees rather than, hey, we I don't get what you're doing. I don't see why you're saying this. Let's talk about it. Because even though it doesn't make sense to me, you've been at this a lot longer than I have. And, you know, and again, when I was younger, I thought I knew everything. But when you, when you, have, a pre, when you have a seminary, when you have a student come to you and tell you, that he gets mad at you because you use Eucharistic number two because he thinks that the dew on the, the rainfall of the dew is heretical. You're a 19-year-old kid. What in the hell do you know? <laughs> now, granted, maybe you do know something because St. Therese was super holy. She was 24. But come on. I mean, really? Uh, anyhow, that's a whole different discussion. I don't want to go down that road right now because we got to talk about Beatitude. Well, I was hearing a priest who was newly ordained said that one of the biggest things he thinks is that the seeing the pastor and the parochial vicar not parish situation not oppose 
for the people to not see if you're at odds with each other, because then that is going to just spark oh my more gosh in the parish. Because it, then it's like the prisoners start taking sides. Oh yeah. And that's really when the the enemy will. Well, they're going to go to the associate yeah, to try to get to the pastor. Uh-huh. And when the associate says, nope, I'm not even bothering with that. You got a problem? Go to the pastor. Yeah. So, yeah, the evil one's going to look for ways to create disunity. And that's why I think, yeah, we need to be willing to dialogue about a lot of things and talk about things and to listen to other people. Um, you know, I, I won't get into exact details about this, but, you know, I, I was encouraged to have a discussion with someone who I think a lot of conservative Catholics would disagree with uh, his approach to the church, the theology. But, but he's a Catholic, and, and if I'm going to win him over, i got to be nice to him. I'm not going to be a jerk to him. And so we sat down, we had coffee, had a great discussion. I learned a lot, he learned a lot, and it's just that process that takes time. And, you know, today in the world, being a jerk is to people that just it's not going to win them over. Maybe back in the day it did. But it's the patience of walking with someone, accompanying someone, and saying, hey, okay, we disagree here, but there's no way you're going to win people over. There's no way if you're a jerk to them. So, one last thing. What is the most evident, in my opinion, fruit of the Spirit? It's going to be joy. It's probably not surprising. I'll end this lesson with this quote from Ratzinger I found that blew me away. I was... Man, you can never read enough Ratzinger. Do you all know that? You can never read enough Benedict. Never. He says, we may say that the spirit is the spirit of joy and of the gospel. One of the basic rules for the discernment of spirits could be formulated as follows. Where joylessness rules and humor dies, we may be certain that the Holy Spirit, the spirit of Jesus Christ, is not present. Sounds like the Pharisees. Furthermore, joy is a sign of grace. One who is serene from the bottom of his heart, one who has suffered without losing joy, we're going to talk about that, is not far from the God of the gospel, from the Spirit of God, who is the Spirit of eternal joy. That's what we talked about. Y'all, y'all know it when you see it, that, that joy is the Spirit, which is connected to the ultimate goal or end of the moral life. We're going to take our little 10-minute break, and we will come back and move to the next lesson.